Without further ado, eight or a better. <laughs> This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? And we are uh, recording before a live uh, studio audience at Hastings College of Law. Why don't you all say hello to everybody? <laughs> uh, on this episode, we're joined by San Francisco's uh, public defender, Mano Raju. Mano, welcome. Thank you, gentlemen. It's an honor to be here with you. I'm a big fan of your uh, work in the field. And uh, we're going to be talking about public defense. We're going to be talking about what brought Minot uh, to this work, uh, his uh, somewhat significant career transition from a trial lawyer uh, in front of juries to running uh, one of the most cutting edge public defender's offices in the country. Uh, and uh, so why don't we just get into it? Yeah. So it's, it's a real great pleasure to be here with you. Mano, um, I've known you for several years and we've actually, we're talking about recording this podcast before you became public defender, when you were a mere uh, deputy public defender or supervising public defender in we San Francisco, were, we were down with Mano before, yeah. you know, before <laughs> way back. Yeah, and we were talking about. Uh, if you remember, we were thinking about uh, hosting a live recording at a tenderloin Indian restaurant. I do remember uh, that. Maybe like Shalimar or um, Chutney. Chutney or Mela or something like that. But here we are at Hastings. It's a nice uh, substitute for Shalimar. The samosa. Yeah, we have samosas. <laughs> yeah. So, but no chutney. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you here, and it's also a real pleasure to be hosted by the South Asian Bar Association and the South Asian Law Students Association, because it gives us a chance to talk to you not only uh, about about your career as a public defender, but what preceded that, uh, your background as a Indian American and your family background. And so, um, I think I brought my mom here with me tonight. She's there in the back, Malika Khan. Uh, my family comes from my family. My parents are immigrants from Madras, now known as Chennai, India. I think you're a fellow uh, South Indian. Is that right? I am. I so am. can you tell us about um, your your parents, uh, where they came from, their, uh, where you come from, and your kind of family story uh, in terms of how they came from India to be here in the United States? Sure. So my Parents grew up in a small farming town uh, near, in, also in Tamil Nadu in South India, near Madurai. Madurai is the closest city that they were uh, from, but it's a town called Alina Nagaram, which is on the border of Kerala. It's a small farming town. And, you know, my parents grew up without a lot of means. It was basically a farming peasant community. And my dad was one of these people that just, you know, he'd be in the corner with cotton in his ears and he was just known to be like a really good student. He would actually walk over to the next town to hear the radio uh, to get a vision of, you know, things outside of, of um, Ali Nagra. And then he did very well in school and was actually offered the opportunity to go to Madre, which is about a two hour bus ride away. And everyone thought like, that's too far. How are you going to manage that? He ended up Getting him into Christian College in Chennai, which is where your oh, I family. I think that's my, where my family's from. Where my, family's I think from. my dad went there. Right. Yeah. And he told me tells me stories that that's the first time that he actually wore a pair of pants because he would always just wear a dhoti, uh, you know, until then. <laughs> and he just had at some point got some vision that he wanted to go abroad and provide more opportunities. So he came here to this country with eight dollars in his pocket, and eventually brought my mother here, and we grew up on the East Coast, both in. Uh, in Pittsburgh in the Boston area. I ended up going to school at Columbia. And even though I think a part of him really wished that I had, you know, chosen to, you know, go into something that's consciously more lucrative, just, you know, the financial anxiety of being an immigrant 
um, an immigrant, and I see a lot of knowing uh, nods, nods in the audience. Uh, even though that was there, he was also, you know, very progressive-minded, and we would have international uh, community around us. My parents' best friends, one was Haitian, one was Jamaican, another family from Zimbabwe, and they'd always come into the home, be very critical of U.S. foreign policy, and had a very progressive views that actually in, influenced me greatly. And uh, and my mother also had a lot of those views. My mother didn't have a lot of formal education, but you know, I still think to this day is one of the smartest people in my whole extended family. So she, when I told her that I was interested in becoming a public defender, she said, well, if you can get one person, you know, acquitted who shouldn't, you know, who shouldn't be convicted, then it's worth it. And hopefully I've done more than that. But um, so they really were influential uh, as far as the direct public defender route. So I'd made a decision both through them and through some influential high school teachers that I was going to be doing something people oriented in my profession. I ended up at Columbia and was geared or guided towards Kendall Thomas, who's one of the founders of the critical legal studies movement, in particular the critical race studies movement. So he encouraged me to go to law school, ended up coming out to Berkeley. And first I did actually a master's in South Asian studies and went back to Madre and did a deep dive into Tamil and Tamil literature. And oh, wow. um, so there was a possibility I was going to go that route. But I was already accepted to law school. And once I went to law school and got a taste for uh, criminal defense work in particular, uh, even though there are other areas I dabbled in, community side labor law, housing law, um, worked at the Asian Law Caucus also. I had a feeling when I eventually, the niche I'd eventually land in long term was public defender work. So let me ask you so, um, you know, in my family and in my kind of the broader South Asian community, South Asian American community that I grew up in, uh, law wasn't necessarily a kind of acceptable uh, career choice early on in the in our kind of um, immigrant populations, uh, you know, amongst their choices. Uh, mm -hmm. It was either medicine or engineering as a traditional uh, career path. Uh, law, at least the, the, what it was perceived as in the communities I grew up in was law lawyers as liars or lawyers as being unethical or being, um, you know, shady in some shape or form. And so it wasn't really perceived as a noble profession. So did you get any resistance from your family or from your broader South Asian uh, or Indian uh, community that you were growing up in or your broader family back home in India uh, to pursuing law at all? Well, my broader family in India, no, because, you know, from mainly a farming community, they were just like you're in the United States and that's, you know, uh, a big deal to them. In my immediate family, yeah, my father was like, what are you doing? You're becoming a lawyer as opposed to an engineer or some other field. However, once uh, they, although compared to becoming an academic in, in uh, like South Asian studies, it was law seemed preferable. <laughs> uh, uh, but then once my father actually saw me do a trial and do a closing argument, he was, you know, very proud of me. And then we just, we started, you know, speaking about, about speaking out about issues, including gang related issues. And he saw an article in which I was uh, quoted in the New York Times Magazine. So that brought him a lot of pride too. So, you know, I think it's really important that regardless of what perceptions are out there, and it's completely understandable why the immigrant generation has those perceptions that you still find your own truth and follow it. And when you do that often, a lot of good things happen. Can you tell us about that trial your dad came and watched? Was it a, was it a gang case or a 186? That, that was case? actually a case in Contra Costa County. It was a possession for sale case. Uh, you know, someone was charged with possessing 
was methamphetamine in that case with the intent to sell it and it's often an issue did someone just possess it or did they possess it with the intent to sell it my argument was there was no intention to sell it and the jury the jury agreed with that with you with your uh, with your dad there did you put any extra things on it that you remember did you like close extra hard or um i you know i closed hard but i always try to close hard so, yeah. so um i, I want to tell the story to the audience and i've told it to other people so when i was a 3l here at hastings i was trying to get my foot in the door at one of the bay area public defender's offices and so i put my applications out everywhere i didn't know anyone that was in the field uh, i didn't know anyone in my uh, the community that I grew up in, uh, in the Muslim uh, Bay Area community or the South Asian Bay Area community. And so I was kind of going at it blind, um, put out my applications, and then I applied to the Contra Costa County Public Defender's Office in 2006. And I got a call from uh, Susan Hutcher, who's a hiring um, attorney there, and she called me in for an interview. And so I went over there for an interview. I didn't even know where Martinez was, where Contra Costa County was. And I showed up there for the interview. I did the interview, thought it went reasonably well. And I was walking out, and guess who came running after me? It was Mano. And I didn't know Mano. Um, we hadn't met before. And you, I think you caught up to me outside the office, and you, you said to me, um, you said, hey, I wanted to t introduce myself to you. I'm, I'm Mano. You said, there's not, a, no, there's not a lot of us doing this type of work. And I'm, you were referring to our, us being Indian and brown. And uh, if, if there's something I can do, let me know. And you handed me your card. And it was so valuable because, I, like I said, I didn't know anybody uh, doing the work, let alone anybody that looked like me and had a similar background to me. I think I emailed you. And you must have put in the good word for me because I got hired. And that launched my career into public defense. So I wanted to ask you, with that kind of story in mind, um, you're the first Indian public defender that I knew. Um, so what was it like as an Indian public defender, a, a, a public defender um, of color, um, coming up in a, in a practice that is largely where we're not represented? What was that like, both internally in the Contra Costa County Public Defender's Office, but also in the courtrooms where I, I'd imagine uh, the jury pool didn't look like you, the bench didn't look like you, the DA's office didn't look like you, your clients don't necessarily look like you. So can you describe what that was like to kind of find your footing? Sure. I think one thing, and I've come to this awareness more, the more complicated the cases are, is that I think there's a lot of times you can actually capitalize on your cultural and historical background and family background to actually be more powerful in the courtroom. I actually think there's a lot of dynamics that are very similar um, between my parents' village and uh, places like the Bayview in San Francisco in terms of some of the dynamics of the navigation strategies. I even had an uncle who was um, uh, wrongly charged with a murder because of the, the jati or the caste that he came from. So I think the first thing is to realize how many similarities there are. Um, now, the judge may not know that, and you know the district attorney may know that, but you can actually connect with your clients if we actually draw similarities between our own backgrounds and those of our clients. So I think as far as identity, I first of all define myself as like a racial justice public defender uh, very consciously. And you know I came to, when I came to law school, I already had that perspective of viewing you know ideas about the world liberation, anti-colonial struggles both in my personal life and family life and uh, my academic and 
scholarly view of the world. So then since I'm coming to a public defender position from that background, then I think for me, what's most important is actually really connecting with my clients who, you know, may not have as much schooling as I have, but when you break things down, probably have a similar worldview in a lot of ways. So I think it's really important if you're just focused on being client centered as opposed to judge centered or district attorney centered. And if I keep that base with where I am, then it really enables me to, to hold my voice and, and try to be as powerful as I can in the courtroom. So, um, with that, with that in mind, like, was there, were there any unique challenges, at, uh, um, in terms of, like I said, inner office dynamics, uh, or things that you now can reflect on, you know, in hindsight as, as being a young, uh, South Asian or Indian public defender in these offices or in these courtrooms, is there anything that you look back on and, and saw as a, as, as a challenge or things that you had to overcome, um, to kind of get to where you are now? Yeah, I think, you know, if you're a really aggressive public defender and you also aren't, you know, in the mainstream, uh, racially or ethically, um, it can, there can be resistance to what you're doing. And I've, you know, I remember one uh, supervisor writing an evaluation, like you're doing a great job in court, your clients like you're getting a lot of good results, but be mindful that sometimes, you know, the judges or the DAs may want you to get along with them a little better. I'm like, Okay, um, but the reality is I'm getting good results from my clients and that's what my charge is. My, that was my understanding of what the job is when I came here. So I'm gonna keep doing it that way. And I think that's you know something that I continue to carry over into my practice in San Francisco. And when that's the case and you may not be part of the insider baseball team, there's gonna be some people that react to, react to you negatively. But fortunately for me, I have a community within the public defender's office. I see uh, Rebecca here from my office, who's one of the founders of our, and uh, co-chairs of our racial justice committee, and one of the co-founders of public defenders for uh, racial justice, the Pan Bay Area organization. And we have to find, and I found my own community that really supports aggressive client-centered racial justice oriented litigation, and that really helped me. When you say uh, aggressive uh, client-centered, uh, representation, you know, as, as opposed to maybe uh, accommodating uh, risk averse uh, practice. Can you can you talk uh, just to us about what that what that means for you and maybe some particular cases like um, we could talk about Landers as an example uh, of an aggressive, uh, you know, client focused approach to trial practice uh, or, you know, when you're saying that, what do you what do you mean uh, for the you know, for people thinking about how do I how do I want to define my criminal defense practice if that's what I wind up doing? Sure. It, because of uh, the history, really the racist history of this country, starting in slavery, um, moving into Jim Crow, and now we have an understanding from Michelle Alexander and others about the new Jim Crow, coupled with um, immigration laws that have been discriminatory for another number of years, a lot of our clients come into the system feeling very disempowered. They feel like, you know, you might be a public pretender or you're getting paid by the same people as the DA and you guys are just, you know, having lunch together and you're not really in my corner. And that's a common perception. And frankly, it's not an irrational perspective uh, that a lot of our clients have. So because of that, it's really important that our clients know from minute one that we are firmly in their corner, that we are going to leave no stone unturned 
that we're going to fight for them as hard as they can. There are a shocking number of times that our clients are mischarged or at a minimum way overcharged. That happens all the time and it's pretty common. And so we have an uphill battle, but knowing that it's really important that our clients understand that we are really, you know, that we're confident and despite the DA's overcharging that we're working on our skills and we're going to file every single motion. We're going to know everything we can about our clients and their families and their social history. And we're prepared to use our skills in the courtroom. And if they do that, then more often than not, we can actually get better results. Um, you know, I actually was listening to an early podcast of yours and there was a retired uh, former public defender. He said, listen, it's one of the client's decisions that's clearly the clients is whether or not to go to trial. And that is, he's right that that's the client's decision. However, I know both as a colleague and subsequently as a manager that I can give three different attorneys, a, you know, assign them to a particular case. So same client, same police report, same set of facts. And that client, if it's one with one attorney, will say, you know, I want to take this deal. With another attorney, they may say, I'm not sure what I want to do. And with the third attorney, they may say, I'm ready to go to trial. So even though it is the client's decision, who we are, who we are in relation to our clients really shapes their expectations and their possibilities. So you want to be someone who's working as hard for the client, has as much skill and has some swag, frankly, so that those clients realize that you're going to make some good things happen. Then if they make a decision, it's coming from a place of empowerment as opposed to a place of disempowerment. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of times you'll see uh, people come to court to watch a closing argument. It's really important. It's a place where we can learn a lot, but a lot of what happens and what shapes the outcome of the case is not the closing argument, but the initial meeting with that client and how you're shaping things and how you're really uh, empowering, creating an empowering relationship. Yeah, one thing we've talked about before is uh, the fact that our clients come to us, uh, the thing that brings them to us is the fact that they don't have money to afford an attorney. And in their lives, not having money for stuff has been universally a bad thing, right? It's never been a good outcome for them. That, or, you know, it, or it's never been a guaranteed good outcome, right? They're not better off. And so there's this trust deficit that we confront as public defenders that we should like really kind of thoughtfully and intentionally try to overcome when we have clients because it's it's not uh, the case that they're worse off when they wind up with a public defender right it's the one I, there might be more but it's one that i'm pretty confident in where the fact that people can't afford something means that they get better quality service you know think about the examples where that exists and it's because of the sixth amendment and it's because of kind of societal commitments where they exist to resourcing public defenders. But if you go in and say, I'm just here to have you make whatever call you want to make and I'll do, you know, it doesn't really bother me one way or the other. You're not kind of overcoming uh, that trust deficit. That's so much a part of our practice. You know, when clients tell me, uh, you know, I don't, you don't believe in my case, you don't want to fight or anything like that. It's a, the most understandable kind of rational decision that they could make under the circumstance, not knowing who we are or what we're there to do. Um, so I think that kind of overcoming it is a, a significant thing. Can I ask you, um, I want to, uh, okay, so you want to change the system. You want to, you want to fight for your clients. Mm -hmm. You want to get them the best possible outcome. You want to tear apart mass incarceration and all, all of the ugliness that our system has uh, uh, generated. Uh, how do you balance the client-centered focus 
of representing a particular person who's facing serious stakes with the desire to not be a party to uh, this ugliness of, you know, plea bargaining, for example, uh, overcharging. You said the people who are start out incorrectly charged, you know, way overboard. How do you how do you balance that or think attorneys should balance that? That's an excellent question. Um, you know, you want to, as a public defender with individual clients, obviously you want to do everything you can for that client within a very unfair system to try to generate the best result from them. And on that note, you know, we talk about like maybe losing, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes. I know we're on the uh, radio. <laughs> Uh, or on podcast, the trial. We're on we, the record player. We're on the right record now. player, right? but we don't talk about uh, losing the plea, right? And it, but if there's a plea that happens that you didn't want to happen because you didn't have that trust with that client, then you may have lost that plea, and that's something we should think about. Having said that, we want to get the best result for our client, but the, I think the reality is we have to do both. Like one of the reasons we started public defender racial for public defenders for racial justice because we want to look at. Uh, broader systems. We want to look at broader policy changes. Can we get more diverse juries? One idea that I've had is, you know, San Francisco is such a wealthy town, and yet there are people who are hardshipped off jurors because they can't financially afford to be on the jury for that many days. And a lot of those jurors are people who are perhaps from the neighborhood where this alleged crime happened. So they're the people who have the most stake in actually being on the jury. And yet because of a financial hardship, they can't be on the jury. So why don't we have a system whereby we have foundations or some of these tech companies that are funding the jurors who can't be, who can't afford to be on that jury. We really shouldn't have financial hardships in San Francisco. It's something that could be easily uh, rectified if we're truly interested in diverse juries. Can we go to other, can we go to PG&E Roles? Can we go even to look at people who work in this city? Can we figure out other ways so we get more representative juries? And I think these are things that we have to start having those conversations. I was actually in a trial where it was a young African-American man charged with a very serious crime facing a potential life sentence. There were uh, gang charges and I had a white juror raise his hand while we were doing the portion of the trial, which is called um, voir dire, the jury selection part of the trial. And he said, you know, you keep on, I don't think I can be on this jury. I don't think he's gonna receive a fair trial because there's no diversity on this jury. There's no one from the Bayview on the jury. The DA had just kicked off uh, a Filipino social worker who was from the Bayview, which is part of San Francisco. And there's no African-Americans on this jury. I don't know how he can possibly get a fair trial. Now I had noticed this before and I told the judge there's only four African-Americans in the courtroom. You actually have the ability to move jurors in the courtroom if you want to create more equity. You can move someone up. He was actually open to it, but the DA, DA objected, and the judge didn't move the jurors. After this juror made that comment, someone else said they agree, and then most of the jury jurors in the courtroom started clapping. So the jurors in San Francisco understand that we have this issue. Um, that's, they're aware of that. Um, so we have, I think, that potentially political will to have a fair system, and, but we have to start doing that. Another issue is um, police misconduct. Every other witness, when there's some information that the prosecution has, they immediately turn it over to us. But when it comes to police officers, 
you have to file this motion called a pitches motion and it's complex and there's a long timeline that sometimes forces you to waive time or put the trial off further than it would be otherwise. Now we have the passage of 1421 and the records have just been dribbling in at a snail's pace. But again, why do we think that people are gonna go claim to an arm of the police about what the police do? I don't know if you saw, what was the Oakland movie um, recently? Uh, anyway, they, they, there was someone in the a movie. Live who, studio. Anybody sorry. from the audience? Uh, <laughs> anyway. The, Train uh, stoppers, no. Uh, Blind spotting? Blind spotting. Blind spotting, exactly. And he was saying, wait a second. So you want me as a felon to go complain to the police about what the police did just now? Like, why don't I just walk myself right into the jail, right? (laughs) Even though he observed this, you know, misconduct by the police. So why don't we have windows at public defender's office where we're collecting the misconduct? Like, we're the people that actually the community would trust to collect that information. Instead, it's, you know, so can we think about other ways of changing the system while at the same time we are um, fighting for our individual clients. And I think the simple answer is we have to do both. I just uh, pitched to the mayor and the board of supervisors an integrity unit because what happens is there's criminal legal system reform, for example, 1170D in California, where prosecutors can make a motion to vacate an unjust conviction. And even though that law passed, then there was actually ex-San Francisco district attorneys who were involved in that. They haven't moved yet to vacate a single conviction conviction and we're now in september and this went into effect in january so we pushed for an integrity unit that it can actually try to make some of these policies actually filter down to our clients i think that the story about that juror uh for me at least it reminds me that when we get to do this work one of the cool things about it is we get to talk in the system as it's operating and pointing that thing out, there's nothing stopping an attorney uh, from saying, I think there's something wrong with the way uh, these hardships are playing out mm-hmm. because the whole cross-section is going away. Mm-hmm. And you get to say those things and like nobody can do anything. You just right. say it, you, just say uh, it. You, you voice it out in the world and right. then it can make some possible difference. Uh, I mean, I feel like talking about how bad the plea bargaining system is during plea bargaining uh, actually can make a difference. Right. This is a what is a you know kind of free choice supposed to look like? Well, yeah, I was you know I've been thinking about that a lot too. And one of the things to kind of bring it back to the the us being South Asian lawyers and what Yamini talked about in her opening remarks. I mean, one of the powerful things of about us and others like us that are in our courtrooms representing our clients, um, breathing life into constitutional principles that are in our Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment. Um, we ultimately are changing the narratives that surround our people, but without having to actually say anything about our people. Like, I mean, if you know, how powerful is it that we have um, people like us and Yamini and others that are uh, brown and that are speaking about American constitutional values and not only speaking about them, but like putting on suits and doing it in front of juries. Um, it's uh, really powerful. Um, and, it, and when there are so many stereotypes that have been attached to our communities for so long, um, we slowly but surely debunk them uh, one, one appearance at a time. And so it's, it's been so powerful uh, to be able to do that. Um, and so we become known as public defenders that happen to be South Asian as opposed to South Asian public defenders. And, uh, and then we also be, are known as these champions of justice and champions of the Constitution as opposed to being these outsiders or foreigners or people with accents or people that own convenience stores or whatever it might be, these stereotypes that, again, have been attached to us for so long. you have any, any thoughts about that, uh, Mano? 
Well, I, I think I, I think what you're saying is is right on on one level, like presumption of innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, you know, the jury trial. These are storied institutions, and in, even in American pop culture, you know, you go back to like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Twelve Angry Men, and so to jump into that role as a South Asian on some level, it's perceived as a, as a quintessentially like American job, even uh, ideologically and in terms of the system and i think there is um you know something special about just stepping in there as someone who comes from an immigrant community and just embracing that you know we can try to hold the system to those principles the the irony is that even though on paper this this notion of presumption of innocence beyond a reasonable jury of your peers you can't envision a more fair system ideologically and yet this country cages a higher percentage of its people than any other than any other country. So why does that happen? And the reality is we have a system whereby when you do exercise those rights, when you do push on preservation of Fourth Amendment rights and Fifth Amendment rights and Sixth Amendment rights and end up going to trial, a lot of people inside the system think you're being unreasonable and think, why are you pushing this? Why are you exercising these rights? Because there's a strong uh, desire among people who are managing the system to have people plead out because it's much more efficient from them, for them. So I think it is um, symbolically important to have people from different communities really embracing these principles. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on that. And you mentioned like uh, in terms of talking to talking to clients and having that swag. So the swaggiest public defender that I knew um, and that I still know was um, the late great Jeff Adachi. Um, he is a Hast- he was a Hastings alum, and he he passed um, last last year or earlier this year. And um, one thing that I when I was reflecting on him uh, after he passed was how much he. Um, emboldened me as a fellow Asian American public defender to do this work. Uh, he made the job seem so cool. He seemed he was so he had so much passion and so much energy that he brought to the work, um, and he um, he made it feel acceptable that other Asian Americans like me, like Avi, like yourself, could do the work and do it well, and that we have a place in the courtroom um, because oftentimes. You know, I know you mentioned earlier about having that swag, but as a South Asian lawyer, as a son of immigrants in these often uh, kind of white courtrooms, it can be hard sometimes to feel that confidence or to feel that energy, to feel that swag. So there might be a moment in time where I might be a little gun shy about objecting on a, when a witness gives an improper answer or when a DA asks an improper question or maybe making a motion when, a, when I feel a, a DA is, is acting um, inappropriately because there is that little bit of shyness that, that we carry because we, we, are that, we, we have that kind of immigrant mentality that we don't want to ruffle too many feathers. We don't want to rock the boat. We want to be nice. We want to be liked. Um, but Jeff kind of took the top off that and said, no, be you, be proud, you know, you belong. And he didn't have to say it, he just did it. Um, and so that's what I reflected on about Jeff Adachi. You got a chance to work with him every day. So I, I wanted to uh, ask you what your uh, reflections were or are on having worked with Jeff, what he taught you, um, how he motivated you. Um, and then I'll ask you some follow-up questions about what it's, what it's been like to, to fill his shoes. Thank you for that question. Uh, Jeff Adachi really, um, to a lot of us, 
was uh, a civil rights hero, an Asian American hero, and a public defender hero all rolled into one. He was, you know, an absolute force of nature. It's almost as if he knew how many breaths he had, he was going to have on this, this earth in this lifetime, and he was going to do everything, squeeze every bit of juice, you know, out of uh, his potential from the movies to the trials, to the development of the office, to the idea of public defenders for racial justice, to our immigration unit. He was constantly looking to take um, his own production to the less, next level, our office to the next level, and public defending uh, to the next level. At one of our last managers meetings, at the last managers meeting I was in with him, he sat next to me and he talked about, you know, he was happy with the level we had gone, gotten to, but he said, how do we get to the next level? And that's something I'm thinking about constantly. And in your point about empowering, you know, younger attorneys of color. When I came into the office from Contra Costa, you know, after I interviewed, he came in to me and he said, listen, I really want you to be, you know, a jolt to this office. I really want you to not just fit in, but really think about how you can elevate uh, the practice in this office. And, and, and that meant a lot to me. But and then like three to four years later, I hadn't been there that long. And there were a number of attorneys that were senior to me. And he, he came up to me and said, you know, we had an advertising for training director. Why didn't you apply for it? And I hadn't thought of it because I just come to the office and he said, well, I'd really like you, you know, to apply for the position. So then I applied for it. And then obviously he planned on giving it to me when I uh, applied for it. And, <laughs> and then he gave it to me. But the interesting thing is, you know, there were many people in the office who had been there, you know, close to 20 years or so. And a lot of, you know, managers or public defenders would put the most senior person in that position of being the training director, but he had a different vision. And he actually, again, didn't explain it to anyone. He just put me in that position and then empowered me. And he really gave me the green light to do what what he thought, what I thought would be best for the office in terms of uh, trial colleges. We started a practice called trial practice groups where people would get on their feet and actually practice portions of what they're going to do in the courtroom, uh, case conferences. So there's a lot of things he really empowered me to do. And I think that was part of um, you know, his vision, he himself had, you know, as an Asian American, as a proud Japanese American had gotten to this point where he really, you know, was trying to push the profession. And when he saw someone else that he saw that potential spark in, he was not afraid to empower uh, that person to be, to be their full self. So I think we all owe uh, Jeff just so much for what he's contributed to both the community and to a lot of us individually. So you talked about feeling empowered by Jeff. I, I want to follow up on that. Um, similar to that, that kind of that potential lack of confidence that we might have as South Asian attorneys uh, to, you know, voice our fullest voice in a courtroom. Uh, sometimes I feel personally that it can be sometimes hard to find our footing within offices too. Like there's a feeling that because we have a job, we should be grateful. We should just put our heads down and grind and work hard, not say anything, don't ruffle too many feathers, don't seek leadership, just be a worker bee. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, and, That's a time. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so 
and, and not necessarily, um, again, be at our full capacity or, or, or extend our fullest voice. Um, and, and sometimes that may extend to not seeking out leadership or shying away from leadership or in the, way, the story you described, mm -hmm. maybe feeling that you're not even qualified for a position that someone else thinks that you are really qualified for. So I, I want to um, ask you what it's been like as a South Asian attorney uh, coming up in the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, um, you know, reaching for a, a management position and then now um, making the decision to uh, attempt to fill Jeff Adachi's shoes and become the public defender of San Francisco. What's that uh, transition been like for you? Well, fortunately, prior to becoming the public defender, I was the felony manager in the office. So me and a colleague of mine were already managing the largest unit in the office. So I felt I feel that I already have a pretty intimate knowledge of a lot of the attorneys in our office and having previously been the training director, I also worked with a lot of the misdemeanor attorneys that then went up into felonies. So it positioned me uh, well to be someone who could could assume the role of public defender in the office. Uh, Matt Gonzalez uh, had always been and has and continues to be, you know, a really amazing thought partner, He's a brilliant attorney who's been the chief attorney there during the last several years when Jeff was there. So I worked with him very closely. Um, so that made the transition uh, easier. But for me, public defense work is a calling. Um, and a lot of people, you know, encouraged me to uh, seek out this position. And when the mayor reached out to me, you know, I told her I was very straightforward about the type of public defender that I am, a very client-centered. I've written articles about racial justice in the system. We, we know about the Landers decision in which um, de deals with defense discovery and our obligation to do everything within our power to fight for our clients, both before, during, and throughout the trial. And I was very transparent about the kind of public defender that I am, one committed to racial justice, one committed to being a trial lawyer, and one committed to um, criminal legal system reform. And so my message to the mayor was, that's who I am. If that's the kind of public defender you want, then, then you should appoint me. And I've been very transparent with people in my office about the kind of public defender that I am. For, the fortunate thing about the way Jeff led the office, we have so many tremendous leaders already and attorneys and staff members within the office. And it, I have so much to draw on that I'm really looking forward to us collectively taking our office to the next level and then hopefully both drawing on the best of other public defenders offices and trying to open source some of what we do to other public defender offices. Yeah, uh, you know, so I, we've both referred to Landers. I've never connected uh, what was going on in that case with what was happening in your career at that moment where you're you know, unexpectedly, you know, shockingly uh, uh, up for uh, a position to lead the office. Uh, so my, you know, kind of quick version of Landers is you did everything you can uh, to promote your client's interest in a trial. You made complex uh, decisions about discovery that were nuanced and not kind of uh, black and white. Uh, you, your decisions were all uh, kind of in the, with the benefit of hindsight correct. Uh, and uh, you protected your client to the point of obtaining a favorable outcome. And then uh, and then, after all that happened, we're facing uh, sanctions for fighting for your client without, you know, without getting too too into the weeds on the case. Um, 
could you you just mentioned the two things together but i haven't connected those could you talk about kind of the feeling of having done what you believe is right for your client uh, ultimately you were you know the appellate courts agreed uh, that there there was no basis to to sanction you um or to, to find that you had violated any of the rules, uh, that kind of feeling of identity of who you are as a PD and then being the PD, uh, if there is any more connection that I've just described? Sure. It was, well, you know, when they filed that motion, I was like, what? They're trying to sanction me for intending to call a witness that I didn't actually call. So it's this sort of uh, thought crime. And the law is actually that when you form the... <laughs> when it is reasonably likely that you're going to call a witness, then you have to turn over that witness within the appropriate time frame. But that word likely is really important because if you're trying to practice at a high level as opposed to a competent level, because the only reason they have the competent standard is to affirm client's convictions. If we're actually trying to practice at a high level, which is what our clients need, particularly since they're often disempowered, particularly since they're often people of color, and particularly since the juries often don't come from the same communities, then you should be making complicated strategic decisions and you should be making before trial and you should be making during trial and you should be making them all the way to the end. And that's what I did. I made a decision in this case that this witness has some useful information. However, I'm better off not calling the witness. The co-counsel for the co-defendant asked me to put in touch with that witness and he ended up calling the witness so he's the one who had the obligation to turn over that witness and he did um, but this this case really affirms how it is important that we do make those strategic calls and that we do use all the i think the, the word was uh, investigative industry that we can to further our clients interests and if judges are too quick to sanction that it can have a chilling effect on us actually doing that fighting for the client um, so this is a case where I was represented by Chris Gager of our research unit and Matt, and they handled it brilliantly, both in the papers. And the best thing that actually happened in retrospect is the judge in the lower court ended up, did find me uh, $950. And uh, we went uh, and we appealed it. And the appellate decision is one of the best written decisions that it finally clarifies what defense discovery law is. And it, it, embraces the concept that we we should be fighting as hard as we can and we should be making these strategic choices which are not easy and you can't go back in time and sort of monday morning quarterback or reverse engineer what we were thinking and i encourage in our office to have us to have these trial huddles and have these discussions and internal debates about what's the best way to represent our clients so when that decision came down it was actually two weeks before jeff uh tragically passed away and Jeff was just super thrilled about that decision. It's one of the best decisions uh, that's come out of our research unit. It's now being lectured about up and down the state of California. I've got calls from Los Angeles. I've got calls from the Central Valley about research gurus in this area thanking our office for finally generating this distinction that clarifies uh, the law of what defense attorneys have to turn over and liberating, liberating us to practice in the correct way. So. Jeff was um, really thrilled about that decision. We went out to, along with uh, the rest of the team, uh, to a Chinese restaurant, had a really nice, uh, almost banquet-type dinner that night. And But had that decision not come down at that time, I probably don't get appointed to be the public defender because there's a specter of this sanction hanging over my head. Hmm. So when they asked me from the mayor's office, what about this decision? I said, that's 
the reason you should appoint me is you should actually call people they're going to be teaching about this decision this decision in law schools because it's the best decision so they'll they'll be they'll be talking about it on podcasts before exactly. live so, audiences yeah so sometimes you know uh, you, you never, you, sometimes you can't tell what's, you know, what seems like something that's, uh, you know, a bad turn actually ends up being something that's really good for the whole community. So you mentioned uh, law schools, law students. We are at UC Hastings, uh, my alma mater, and uh, we have men, many uh, law students here with us. I have a, some questions that I think uh, may be applicable to, to some of them. Sure. So now that you're, you've been in a position of management as at the San Francisco Public Defender and now you are the Public Defender, I imagine that you're you're interviewing applicants both for uh, post-bar positions and then for attorney positions in your office. What are you looking for, um, for from prospective public defenders that are coming from institutions like Hastings or other law schools in the area? Good question. Uh, one, I would say, is heart. And what I mean by that is you can't do this job if you're not really willing to uh, be vulnerable, expose yourself, love your clients, and put your heart on the line for your clients and for a broader vision of justice. This isn't something for the meek. It's not something for the purely uh, cerebral. Um, so you really got to bring your heart into this uh, practice. Second, I would say, is a work ethic. You know, it's not, uh, some of my friends have, you know, asked me about some of my results and how I got them. And one thing I mentioned is a, is a lack of sleep, you know, um, <laughs> just a lot of time spent investigating the case, a lot of time spent uh, struggling over decisions, waking up, going over to a friend's house at five in the morning to say, listen, I want you to listen to my uh, jury selection before your kids wake up because, you know, I'm not sure how to handle this issue. And driving across the bay to talk to one of my uh, former mentors in Contra Costa to talk about how to deal with a particular fact in a case. You have to be willing to work hard because uh, the stakes are very high and our clients uh, deserve the very best. And lastly, I would say a growth mindset. I think we're just scratching the surface of what it means to be powerful criminal defense attorneys and powerful public defenders. I think there are lessons we can draw from novelists who are experts in, tell in storytelling. I think there are lessons we can draw from advertisers in terms of how do you you know, cut through uh, implicit bias and explicit bias that has shaped, you know, minds and hearts for for generations. And how can you cut through that quickly with, you know, with a short number of words um, and presence? Uh, how can you, you know, there are studies that show that, you know, as far as communication, about 9% of what you say is the content, about 20% or so somewhere in that range is the para paraverbal communications the emotional lilts and things like that and about 70 percent or somewhere in that range is, is is body language so when we're evaluating what we say it's not just or what is effective communication it's not just what you say but how you say it and i think these are all things we have to constantly reassess and um and struggle with as we as we grow our practices so I think we're finishing up and then we'll turn over, we'll go, get to some of the questions that have been submitted and we encourage people to submit questions and to uh, either you can submit them in written form or you can submit them uh, via social social media on Twitter and Instagram at Aider and a Better. But um, 
My last question for you, uh, Mano, is about your message for South Asian lawyers and law students. Uh, we're here with the South Asian Bar Association and the South Asian Law Students Association. So why should the South Asian legal community, law students, lawyers, uh, but then also the broader South Asian American community, why should they care about criminal justice reform? Why should they care about mass incarceration? Why should they think about careers in, uh, in public defense? Um, what, you know, what, what are, what's your message to, to, to these groups? One reason to care is to be on the right side of history. It, you know, years ago, everyone was talking about, you know, tough on crime, and that was the slogan. And now, even within the Democratic Party, everyone's tripping over themselves to get to prove that they're more progressive on criminal legal system reform. And a lot of the things that are being said are things that we've known as public defenders for a very long time. And now there's starting to be more of a light shined on that, shined on those, that shines on those issues. Uh, the second reason is I think it's really important for South Asians to realize that the, you know, Immigration and Naturalization Act probably doesn't happen without the civil rights movement. So I think a lot of South Asians in this room may not be here, but for the efforts that happened uh, in the civil rights movement. Uh, another reason to do it is just because it's a great, fulfilling job. The ability to go into court, to stand next to someone, and to fight really hard for them in court is, is the most exhilarating thing I can imagine doing as a as a lawyer and it's not something that's for everyone for, uh, for some people it might be something that's for them for some period of time perhaps when they're a misdemeanor attorney and they might be very good at that um, but then when they get to the next stage when you're looking at you know the pressure of realizing that you know your client could be looking at five years 10 years 15 years a life sentence and some of your strategic calls could have an impact on that that's not for everyone, but it is. If it is, but someone needs to do that, and someone needs to do that at a high level, in order to reverse the effects of historical discrimination and mass incarceration. So, for those who want to jump into that, there's no more, uh, no more vital field to get into. But you have to do it with the right mindset. Okay, uh, I think we should ask some questions. Uh, I want to start with this one. If you were wrongly accused of murder and you could not defend yourself, you couldn't be pro per, who would you want to represent you? <laughs> well, there's a couple of stellar attorneys. I, th I saw Rebecca Young in this courtroom. I saw Matt Gonzalez. I'm, I'm sitting right you, here. The, and the, and the two, <laughs> I'm spreading it around, and the two of you, I'm sure, would do an amazing job, too. Uh, you know. Um, I'll ask you a question that we actually prepared. It's not on the cards. Obviously, I'll let you handle okay. the note cards. Um, so we, we talked at the top about uh, possibly we were thinking about recording this episode at an Indian restaurant in San Francisco. So what's your go-to Indian tenderloin restaurant? You know, I was going to go tenderloin, but I'm going to switch gears on you. There is a new South Indian restaurant on Valencia called Aditi, which is very good. And it's actually someone from somewhere from pretty close to my own hometown, Coimbatore, okay. and he's got relatives that are actually from my parents' village, so I'm going to shout out Aditi on Valencia. All right. Okay. There's some kind of mind meld happening in the audience, and, and, and Chesa is connecting everybody. Uh, what would Chesa being elected mean for the SF public defender? 
And then another question, if Chesa wins, how will that change the relationship between the SF public defender and the SFDA? Well, Chesa is someone who's a really, really fine attorney, and he's someone who has represented you know, hundreds, if not thousands of clients as a public defender and someone who's truly about criminal legal system reform. So if Chaser were elected, then he's someone who you know, we'd be, I feel confident that we can dialogue on a higher percentage of our cases and there'd be a meaningful ear of someone who has genuinely committed to criminal legal system reform and looking at our clients as individuals as opposed to as defendants. Having said that, whoever the district attorney is, it's important that I try to maintain a working relationship with them. At the same time, it's really important that whoever the district attorney is, is aware that we are representing our clients and we're going to fight for them as hard as we can, no matter who the district attorney is. So we, um, we once recorded Avi, myself, and uh, I think it was just maybe the two of us, we recorded an episode of our favorite um, fictional criminal defense lawyers. We, we went through and listed our favorite uh, fictional public defenders or criminal defense attorneys. So who is, who are either, who is your favorite or amongst your favorite uh, fictional or pop culture defense attorneys that you either look up to or are entertained by or some combination thereof? I listened to a piece of that podcast and I'm going to throw it out. <laughs> Didn't keep your attention. <laughs> no, it did. It just, they're long, I've, long episodes. Yeah. Limited time. I think he went through about 14 or so. It was, it was pretty long. <laughs> There was, a show called the, a review. <laughs> there was a show called The Practice, and an attorney named Eugene on The Practice, off the chart, he would wipe the floor with most criminal defense attorneys that I know. And in fact, I would often watch it. The show came out on Sunday nights. I would religiously watch that show and study his techniques and actually down to even like what what uh, buttons on his coat he would button. I would actually copy him. Eugene is a... <laughs> absolute force in the courtroom. We'll have to dig into that one. Um, okay, here's a, I'll read both these questions. In many ways, your practice as a public defender carries on the legacy of Jeff Adachi. How does it, if at all, differ from Adachi's practice style? So differences between your practice and Jeff's. Uh, your predecessor, Jeff Adachi, was a renowned public defender around the country. How would you characterize his administration of the public defender and how will yours compare? In what ways would it differ? In many ways, uh, as I mentioned before, a lot of the things that I'm envisioning along with other uh, staff and managers in the office are things that probably Jeff would have encouraged. I think I have the benefit of, um, you know, his partnering with him and thinking about how to effectively manage public defenders offices. But one thing I've thought about, and I'm going to throw out a little football analogy for you, is one thing our office has been better than most offices at is the last 20 yards of the red zone in, in football when you get close to the end zone and we often get together and have a case conference where we're brainstorming what happened and what's you know strategies for trial or we'll have a trial practice group where we'll have people get on their feet and practice pieces of the case however the first 80 yards and in part it's a capacity issue and staffing issue you know people aren't going in and watching people's first meeting with the client and giving them you know, feedback on that. People aren't watching necessarily prelims, preliminary hearings and giving people feedback on that. People aren't showing up at case conferences and observing people do that. So a lot of people do that in their own way. So I've actually recently made a move to restructure um, our felony unit. So I have some really 
high-functioning attorneys who practice at a really high level who are going to be coaching people on their more complicated cases. And then I have other uh, felony attorneys who don't have that level of experience on the more complicated cases who are going to be working with people on their daily practice and thinking about, I have 45 cases. How do I manage my time? I just had eight arraignments. What am I doing with these different cases? And, you know, I think in part because our clients tend to be poor people of color, there hasn't been as much time spent thinking about how do we do all levels of representation well? So I'm really trying to think about more collective impact on different, uh, with different attorneys and so we can affect different pressure points in the system. And then continuing what Jeff did, um, I am interested in also furthering people understanding what we did. He really pioneered in a lot of ways getting the public defender message out there through media, through movies. And that's something I want to continue. And I think we can start doing it more through social media, Instagram. I mean, so many people don't understand how public defense is actually about public safety work. We have a tremendous clean slate program where we expunge a lot of people's records, which enables them to get employment, which in return, in turn, helps, you know, increase public safety. So can we make more Instagram videos where we're actually showing those little stories so more people in the public understand all the work that the public defender's office does instead of just the courtroom work? You got something? I have more questions, but if you have any other, uh... well, let's, I mean, this is actually Avi, it's inspired by Avi because he's <laughs> curious about your trial clothing game um, and your sock game. So why are you putting my name on that question? Well, because it was what you texted me all weekend. Was, I want to ask him about his socks. Um, so Avi's curious about. Um, you mentioned like what buttons you might button during trial. So. Avi, for example, Avi and I did a co we co-counseled a case, and I wear traditional kind of matching suits with matching ties. Avi is more professorial; he wears the suit separates, um, and sometimes he shows up with a beard. I have, a coat, no I have beard. two coats and two pairs of pants. That's four outfits. <laughs> so I want to ask you, Mano, uh, what's your what's your trial attire? Um, you know, and then uh, Avi is really curious about whether you have a sock game, like are, do you mix up the socks or are they more conventional? I try to match my socks. Um, <laughs> but having said that, I'm, I'm trying to up, maybe inspiration from Ave, I'm trying to up my sock game and go with more, I'll just show you right here. Oh, okay. Two more colors today. <laughs> I'm also the striped you know, sock. different phases of the trial. I mean, it depends. If you have a long trial, you can't always sustain it for months, but I think different phases of the trial for voir dire, I think more warm colors, I think brown shoes actually uh, reduce the level of formality, which I think is important for the jury selection phase. I think for cross-examination phases, you can go with a little more conservative, dark, um, traditional suits, and I think closing is probably somewhere in between. So this is my own like personal it. pop psychology, uh, but <laughs> I'm going with it until someone convinces me otherwise. Okay. Here's a question from the audience. Uh, what is your advice for students interested in pursuing public interest careers uh, who don't feel like they can afford to do it? That's obviously a challenge for everyone. And I think the first thing to, you know, there are more loan for forgiveness programs out there. And it's always a challenge. And if you need to do something, um, to, to pay back the loans, obviously, you have to do what you have to do. Having said that, I think the first thing to do is to find out what you're really passionate about. And to do that, you should really spend some time in those offices, whether it's a civil rights organization, a housing organization, a public defender's organization, wherever that is. My first exposure to being in a public defender's office was when I met 
Matt Gonzalez in, in this bookstore in the mission just randomly happened. Three of us happened to be there. We were the only ones in the bookstore and someone introduced me to Matt and he told me to come by the office on Thursdays. And that was my exposure to the San Francisco public defender's office while I was in law school. So I think regardless, you have to find something you're passionate about, but I find when you actually find yourself in the right niche, then paths tend to open for you. And if you find yourself in the wrong niche, you'll find doors, at least in my experience, you'll find doors closing around you. So at a certain point, if you're really finding something you're passionate about, yes, will you make less money than you could in a more lucrative career? Yes, but you will be, I think, more fulfilled and more happy in the long run. And I would just say also uh, take advantage of the communities that exist in the spaces that you have access to. If it's the law school, if it's the public interest offices and talk to folks, uh, you know, it can be somewhat when you're feeling a little bit isolated, the pressures can kind of really take hold on terms of I have no choice in, uh, you know, pursuing something I want to do. Instead, I have to, you know, go work and do something that I don't want to do. Uh, and there's a, these are supportive uh, communities. And I think that that can be helpful as you're feeling because it's it's kind of a you know, it's just a difficult decision to kind of calculate rationally, like, okay, here's what the ledger looks like, here's what the income is, but uh, uh, spending time with other attorneys who are doing the work or other law students uh, who are interested in that pursuit, it can be very supportive. Well, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll ask uh, another um, kind of unrelated question. So w when we first started this podcast a couple years ago in 2017, we initially were going to talk about criminal justice. We were going to th throw in some sports. We, we like talked about sports in our first couple episodes, but then the majority feedback we got was, yeah, was stop talking about sports. It's <laughs> 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 stick to public defense. There's stick stay to criminal lane, justice, yeah. stay in your lane. Um, but you mentioned sports and you have East Coast roots. You also have Indian roots. And now you're here on the West Coast. So uh, where do your sports allegiances lie? And do you have like a favorite cricket team? And you're running for real or for election. So <laughs> remember that. Remember yeah. that. So, okay. so I, I first was in Pittsburgh, which has no basketball team. So I read some book about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, this Muslim brother throwing in sky hooks. And of course, and then who gets on the team magic. So I have to confess. I became a Lakers fan. Having said that, I've been in the Bay Area a long time and I've grown a deep appreciation for the Warriors and not just the modern day Warriors like Chris Gatling, Latrell Sprewell, Chris Weber, um, TMC, a lot of love for all those teams. And despite the pre previous time when, you know, I, I had uh, a fondness for Kareem and Magic. I think the Warriors' current makeup in the last five years is by far the best basketball team ever. So. Good answer. <laughs> Please stop. Okay, um, two questions about uh, the kind of elected nature of your work. What opportunities or challenges does being a elected rather than appointed public defender present? And does the elected model of public defender uh, in San Francisco only work in San Francisco because of the electorate? Is there any concern with uh, the office that public safety type candidate might uh, get elected that does not share the office's philosophy or client-centered ambition or something like that? It's fascinating that San Francisco has an elected public defender position and it really you know, I'm embracing the opportunity to meet with as many groups and organizations as possible and really shed light on what we do day in and day out because there's so many misperceptions 
about what public defenders do. There's so much of a lack of understanding about the tremendous amount of overcharging that goes on every day or the trial taxes, the punishing people just for exercising their right to the to a trial. So I really enjoy going out and talking just very candidly with people about what our office does and what public defenders do. It's also really interesting to interface with and connect with other progressives in the city and see how we connect with housing issues, with immigrants' rights organizations, with um, you know wealth preservation or employment-related organizations where we can really see the connection between public defense and other progressive movements in the country. And I think that because San Francisco has an elected public defender, I can really be and we can really be as client focused as we need to be. I think in a lot of other public defender offices, they can't be as aggressive as they'd like to be because they're afraid of maybe the reaction from the board of supervisors or that some of their funding can be taken away or impinged upon in the next cycle. So, whereas here, because we're elected and because I'm openly campaigning very transparently about what our office is about, it's, it's very liberating to be in a city that has an elected position. And it's also just interesting. This is such a dynamic city and it's interesting seeing all the different pockets of dynamism in San Francisco. I'm going to ask uh, these two questions together. Uh, one is immigrant defendants face unique complexities in terms of how a conviction might uh, impact their ability to remain in the United States. How do you believe this should be navigated in negotiating a plea? And then uh, a separate question, uh, what types of issues, if any, have you guys seen in your work that disproportionately affects the South Asian community? Let me answer the, the first question, which is that we have, a, there's a new case that came out called Padilla that mandates that you have to factor in the immigration consequences when you're representing a client and you have to advise them accurately of what the immigration consequences would be for any plea. Even prior to that decision coming out though, just as a human being and as an effective public defender, you should be obviously considering all the collateral consequences to what happens to your clients, whether they're South Asian or from anywhere else. And it's, I think, you know, crucial that we do that effectively. In our office, we've actually tried to do more specialization within our immigration unit. We have one of the biggest immigration units now uh, in the country, and we have someone specializing in, in these, what's called Padilla consults. So in addition to sending an email to the attorney, the criminal defense attorney, so that he or she or they can effectively advise the client, we're actually having the Padilla attorney directly, oftentimes in Spanish, if that's the appropriate language, communicating directly with clients so we can more effectively convey that immigration advice. And I think that applies to not just South Asian clients, but to all immigrant clients. Yeah, I wanted to add on that second question about South Asian clients. Avi and I had the honor of representing um, two South Asian, two Indian clients, uh, one who was a Sikh, uh, turban-wearing, um, bearded um, man who didn't speak any English. Uh, Avi's client was a, um, also a Punjabi Indian who was in America for a little bit longer, spoke some English. But what was really interesting about that experience and us representing them is it, it shined a light on uh, so many layers of our community that I had no concept of. One is that our community is very diverse. Um, and when I say diverse, it means that I came from a, a, a parents who immigrated here for education, who ended up in the middle class, provided me significant privilege and um, access. 
uh, whereas there's so many in our South Asian communities here in the United States that uh, live um, in the, on the fringe or that live in poverty, that are working in our, we talked about Indian restaurants, that are working in the, in the kitchens of the restaurants, that are working as 7-Eleven clerks, that are working in the, in the background that we have no concept of. They're living in the shadows with little access to medical care, with little access to education, to, um, to support and services, and they have oftentimes very limited uh, language skills, and oftentimes they're bringing with them significant trauma. Uh, they're resorting to alcohol, drugs, either very isolated, and they end up in our criminal justice system and are often lost. And so that, that uh, representation really shined a light on for us as South Asians, and especially South Asian lawyers, that there are many shades of our community and that we need to be mindful of that. Um, Absolutely. And I think, you know, to the extent we can bring cultural competency to our representation of any client, it's really important we do that. And, and it may be that you have a South Asian client, and maybe you have a Filipino client or, you know, a Laotian client that, you know, it's not a direct connection, but there may be similarities that you can bring to the table. And I think what's even more crucially important, one thing that I've really tried to encourage in our office, along with others in our office, is to call community experts so that when we don't have that expertise that, or even if we can bring that to the table in our representation of the client, when you get to trial, you can't just go up there and be on the stand. So it's really important that we start paving that the way for bringing in community experts. So there may be a language issue. There may be a, a Miranda advisement that wasn't completely understood because it was misinterpreted or not completely accurately uh, interpreted by law enforcement or just dynamics that when you understand the culture of what actually happened in a particular moment has a different meaning because of the community and cultural context that, that it was in. So we're trying to encourage more and more people to start calling community experts in, into trials. Yeah, and in terms of culturally competent representation for our South Asian clients, I mean, I say these, I say this with some regret. Uh, the the client that I was alluding to earlier, uh, you know, he wore a, a turban. He was a practicing Sikh man, uh, but when he got arrested, he was he was charged with a sexual assault crime. He was stripped down naked. He was turban was removed, and he never wore he never wore his turban again for the duration of his trial at the jail in our in our trial or thereafter. Uh, he didn't ask for it, but I also, I personally wasn't mindful enough to demand it for him. Um, mm -hmm. And so now, uh, having now with the benefit of hindsight, I recognize that I should have uh, been that voice for him because it was meaningful to him. But he was so shy, he was so scared, he was so closed off that he didn't. Um, but having that culturally competent awareness that it may not be the South Asian lawyer that's assigned to the South Asian client, but having our people in these offices so that when a Sikh man gets arrested or a Muslim woman gets arrested and is in our system that there are resources within our office offices for people to turn to. And yeah. then you also mentioned interpreters. Um, one thing that I will I'll say is that no offense to the interpreters in our in our courthouses that are either Urdu speaking or Hindi speaking or Punjabi speaking. But I just got the sense that we were stretched thin in that regard in terms of actually having confident, reliable interpreters that are available to our clients and that we utilize in a way we're actually meeting with our clients. And like you said, it could be for our South Asian clients, but for Southeast Asian clients, uh, uh, Spanish speaking clients. Um, but in particular, since we're talking about South Asian issues, it's, it's that need for qualified interpreters. Um, and that again, also that we utilize um, in an effective way. So those are some of the thoughts that I had when, when that question was asked. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I know in, in this case, you apparently regretfully 
did not choose to ask that he be able to wear his turban, but it could have, on the one hand, you didn't deal with the dynamic of his turban, but it may have been a great opportunity to open up an honest dialogue with jurors. Listen, he's wearing this turban. What does that bring up for you? And actually, you know, and to me, I've been trying to talk about being race conscious in our representation, not just trying to, you know, avoid implicit bias, but just being very conscious of the fact that this turban may evoke certain feelings or sentiments among people. What are those feelings? What is being evoked in you? And then it's a really good opportunity to actually transform perceptions. Great. Um, our last question, uh, and thank you everybody for submitting the questions. Uh, what do you hope to achieve or what aspects of criminal justice reform do you hope to influence over the next four years? <laughs> as much as we can. I mean, the, the criminal legal system needs so much reform. I think we need to continue our drive to hold government accountable. Um, you know, whether it's police, prosecutors, judges, um, we need more accountability in the system so that if there is a conviction that it actually has some integrity and it's not based on us not having, you know, Brady material or, you know, prosecutors committing misconduct and jurors making decisions for for the wrong reasons. Also, I think we really need to figure out individually and collectively how we can just increase the level of representation. I think we talked, I talked before about, I think we're just scratching the surface. I truly believe that. I think all of us can really, because that's one thing we can control, right? We can't always control what the prosecutor does. We can't control what the judge does, um, but we can control our own house and how just continually trying to elevate our game. And the other thing I think it's time for is universal representation for detained immigrants. And I'd love to see, you know, a, get, a, a right to counsel for detained immigrants in addition to what we now have is a right to counsel if you're charged with a crime. So I think that's another direction that we can move in. Now, the form that that's going to take is going to be, you know, individual changes in a lot of areas and individual growth on our side of different attorneys. But I really think um, we have a lot of momentum. I'm very committed to connecting with other public defenders, other chief defenders and other line deputies in different places. I want to rejuvenate our, along with other people and colleagues, our public defenders for racial justice. But I really think we can take public defense and make it even more critically a vibrant uh, part of the civil rights, modern day civil rights movement. All right. All right. Well, let's do it. Um, okay. Uh, thank you all so much uh, for coming through. Uh, we sometimes at the end of our podcast do a thing. It's kind of like a just something we talk about. Uh, so each of us brought one. How are we doing for time? We're good. It? We have like a few minutes. Okay. Uh, so we uh, did you all bring things to talk yeah, about? Yeah, we have things. I'll let you guys go first. <laughs> okay. Um, so I have just two. Uh, one is an opinion came out. Uh, it's called People v. Force. And I hope you all take a look at it. And it was just a, it has this beginning line. So the case the case is about a prosecutor who says something to the effect of, I would love for your client to take the witness stand because then he would be committing perjury or then I could prosecute him for perjury. So it's about 20 pages of what was said and how was it said and what were the implications. Uh, but I haven't read an opinion like this. So I, I you know, somebody recommended it and I, I checked it out. And it says, just the first, you know, just the first page, our, our criminal justice system has only one absolute requirement. The accused must receive a fair trial. He goes on, the uh, just, justice goes on to say, 
uh, enforcing the law, protecting the public, supporting crime victims, any phraseology you choose for other aspects of criminal prosecution are subsets of that one job. It's not about convictions, it's not about courtroom mastery, it's not about prison sentences, and it's certainly not about one lost records. It's about fair trials. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's the whole point. Uh, and uh, I, I haven't, you know, quoted this in court, but I, I'm going to put it in my pocket like, a, uh, like the pocket constitution and just uh, talk about it all the time. Uh, the other thing is, so it's a month of September, and there's that Earth, Wind, and Fire song, September. And there's just this funny thing I read about um, the two songwriters that, that who, who came up with this song when they were working together. One of them uses baduwows, like these little fillers. Um, and he would use that in his songwriting. And his, his partner, she asked him, uh, What's, what are we going to do about the Badawows? And he said, never let uh, lyrics get in the way of the groove. And I think that that's true for uh, trial practice. It's true for most things, I think. Uh, so I just uh, I want to uh, share that with you all that uh, uh, you know, I, I remind myself of it. You know, don't let the lyrics uh, get in into the way of the groove when you're doing this work. Um, my thing is I want to shout out uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Kristen Carter. Uh, she's a friend of the podcast. She's been on the podcast twice. And um, she uh, represented a 15-year-old young man named Adonis Muldrow, an African-American young man who had grew up in the foster care system, unfortunately was accused of very serious crimes, including murder, robbery. Uh, this was all before Prop 57 and before 1391. So he was charged as an adult. He was looking at a potential life sentence. Uh, she and our office were able to secure a determinate term for him, 27 years. Uh, he's been serving that term. And uh, she could have easily um, and reasonably moved on from Adonis, uh, just as, you know, closed that file and moved on. Uh, but she didn't do that. I've, I've been privy to be across the hallway from Kristen for the past couple of years. And I hear Adonis calling her every week. Um, and every time she answers the phone, she always exclaims, Adonis. And they talk about the Warriors. They talk about sports. They talk about the news. They talk about the programs that he's participating in. And she essentially has acted as this friend to Adonis for, for the past few years. And then I also was privy to the fact that without any demand or expectation, she started to prepare a commutation application for Adonis, citing his uh, foster care background, his growth and development in the prison uh, system, and all the, all the great things that he was doing, all the remorse that he was expressing, and the hopes for rehabilitation. And so she quietly, without any fanfare or any spotlight or any expectation, filed this robust commutation uh, package for her client, Adonis. And on Friday afternoon, uh, Governor Newsom called Adonis and called Kristen, or the office called Kristen, informed her that her client's uh, sentence was being commuted from 27 years to now being eligible for parole after 10 years of, of serving his sentence. And so this 15-year-old boy uh, who is now in our system uh, now gets a chance to um, at redemption on the outside. And so I want to shout out uh, Kristen, and I want to shout out uh, uh, shout out Adonis. So hopefully Adonis will get to hear this podcast at some point. And uh, so that's my thing. So I love that line, never let uh, the lyrics get in the way of the groove. And September is actually my uh, nine-year-old son, Asim's favorite groove. So. I'm going to shout him out. And also, we used to live in San Francisco, and then we moved to Oakland. And 
when it became a possibility that I was going to be appointed, I asked him, I said, listen, we're going to have to move back to San Francisco. So you're going to, you know, you're not going to be around your crew, your little crew as much. And he said, no, I think you should do it because you, you know, you fight to free people and you need to take that position. Uh, so I want to shout out uh, Asim, my son, for that. And I also want to shout out um, Ibram Kendi, who just wrote a book, recently published a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And in the point, and his point is to be an anti-racist, you also have to examine your gender biases. You also have to examine sexuality biases. And if you're not doing that, then you can, even if you think you're not being racist, you you are being racist. And not only that, he said, it's not, it's not just to not be racist, you have to be actively anti-racist. And he's really, I think, becoming his ideas. I just heard him speak last Wednesday in Berkeley. And I think these ideas are new ways of thinking about this. And I think we really have to think about uh, public defender work as explicitly anti-racist work. And I you know, look forward doing, to doing that in community with and in solidarity with others in this room and in my office and you know throughout the state and the nation okay all right thanks everybody for coming Thank you.